Um, boy, I wonder what it would be like to live in a country where terms like Christian and born again have a negative connotation. <laughs> when we began this series, I made the statement that, quote, we are witnessing the most terrifying thing that can happen to a society, and that's the death of our consciences, unquote. I think daily it becomes more and more evident that we no longer agree as a society by as a society on an objective moral compass by which the direction of all human behavior can be measured. And the result is both tragic and confusing, and daily in the newspapers we read of such confusion. Uh, this past week, I'll give you an example. President Clinton, as he responded to allegations concerning Mrs. Clinton's involvement in the Whitewater scandal, said this, She is the most ethical person that I know. One congressman responding to Mr. Mr. Clinton's statement said, and that's precisely the problem. <laughs> but I bring that up actually for another point, um, and that is that, you know, on what basis can we make statements like that? On what basis can he make a statement about her moral or ethical position? On what basis can we make a statement regarding someone else's moral or ethical position? And I would hope as we laughed at that particular comment that there was some substance as to why we thought it was funny and there was some depth to what we could compare the statement against. You see, when we start to compare one another's moral and ethical positions, the problem that we have is how do we determine what is correct and what is incorrect, what is right and what is wrong? And obviously that's where the difficulty comes in and that's really what we have to deal with. Because you see, ethics and morals must be measured objectively and not subjectively. It must be measured against an absolute standard and certainly not measured against the behavior of others. See, that's really what our problem is in our culture today. That's, I'm not right in doing something that is wrong because you are doing something that is wrong give you an example. You run into it on a frequent basis with people that are having marital problems. And one person isn't meeting the needs of the other person, so the other person justifies going out and having those needs met in whatever way, shape, or form that they feel is appropriate. The problem is that the person that's not meeting the other's needs is wrong before God, and it doesn't alleviate the responsibility of the other person who then goes and decides to have those needs met in a way that's wrong before God. Just because someone is looting doesn't mean that everyone can loot because someone else is looting. Or that's the same, you know, it's a standard argument that many of us come up with. But officer, I was only going with the flow of traffic. Well, what are we measuring our, what are we measuring our behavior against? We're measuring against the behavior of other human beings. But if that behavior is violating an objective standard, it doesn't really matter if he chooses to pick you out or not. The, the point is that there's a standard. It's a speed limit. And even though you're going with the flow of traffic, really what you've done is you've jeopardized yourself and put yourself in a position that you could be chosen out of everybody that's going with the flow of traffic, but that's no excuse against, uh, before the law. And how many of you have used that? But officer, I was only going with the flow of traffic. Our daughter used that one last week. And it was like, but everyone was going that fast. I was just going as fast as everyone else was. That's just not fair. Oh, well, then we've got a great illustration to teach you a principle here. It's called an objective standard by which you measure. It's an odometer. It's a speedometer. It's, it's like a speed limit. It's a sign that says this is how fast you go. And if you go anything beyond that, then you put yourself in jeopardy of getting a ticket. Duh. 
And see, that's the problem. See, this philosophy of situational ethics and of comparative moral behavior is one of the things that is slowly suffocating our consciences collectively. So all of this leads to the question of the day. And that is, how do we revive our consciences? And the, and the answer is very simple. We must take some type of action to ensure that our consciences do not die. But the question then becomes a matter of, well, where and how does this take place? And I'm glad that you asked. Because for centuries, we've understood the answer. Where and how does this take place? Where do we, where do we collectively teach and revive the conscience of our nation? It starts in one place. And you know where that is? In families. That's where it starts. This morning, we're going to look at the importance of families. Where does this take place? Where do we teach values that will revive the consciences of the people around us? Where do we teach things that are right and teach things that are wrong? Where do we teach behavior that is measured against an objective standard rather than comparative to the, the behavior of other people? It all starts in families. That's where. And next week we'll talk about how to do it. But the point I'm, I want to get across in this particular session is that we need to understand the importance of the family. And the problem that we have today is that we're not even sure how to define it anymore. And that's where we run into all kind of difficulty because we're asking a question, well, you know what, what is a family? And we have to go back to some basis, uh, basics because the problem is if we don't understand what a family is, then we're not sure if this is where we're supposed to be, do, be doing this. And so what is a family? You know, the family has taken a tremendous beating over the last several years and actually the last couple of decades by those who in our society that want to redefine the traditional family to fit their personal agendas. And uh, this is exactly why we need an objective moral standard or a compass that's an absolute so that human behavior can be changed when it is off course. The standard never changes. Behavior must be modified to, 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 uh, to change according to the standard. My daughter could not convince the police officer to change the standard. The standard is absolute. It doesn't change. It's not a variable. The problem that we have is then when we're dealing with human behavior, we only have two choices. One is either we change our behavior to adapt to the standard that's an absolute, or we try to redefine the standard in order to bring it down to our level of behavior. And that's the struggle that we find in our society today. We've got people in our society that want to redefine the standard, in this case, what is a family, to somehow or another bring it down to their level of the way that they are behaving in their lives. So this is where the Bible comes in, because the Bible is an objective standard that doesn't change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is the same. It will never change. Everything else on earth will pass away, except for the word of God never fades away. And so the point that we have to get back to is, is understanding who God is, understanding that he exists, understanding that he has a plan and a purpose for all of us whom he created, and understanding that it's his definition of what is a family that we now need to understand in order to change society's definition to once again align itself with what God has to say. So if you've got your Bibles, hopefully turn to Genesis chapter 1 as we look at God's definition of a family to kind of lay the foundation for everything that we're going to talk about this morning. As we go through these passages, you'll note that God has very specific ideas about what he calls a family, and we need to pick them out as we go along. But in Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 24, we read this. 
Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, there was a sixth day. And as we go through this, there are some things that we need to pick out as far as God's idea of a family. And the first thing that we notice is that God created us male and female. He created us. It says he created them. Male and female. Very distinct here is that God created male and female. All right? Let's not miss this as we go through it. He also went through in verse 28 and said, and he would have, and it says, and God blessed them and said to them, speaking of who, the male and the female, that they would be fruitful and that they would multiply. So God created male and female with the capacity to reproduce themselves, and that's important as we take a look at the definition of a family. Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, and I'll make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Here we go again. Just a couple practical things to understand. God created them male and female. He created them with the capacity to reproduce. He also says, for this cause, speaking of the institution of marriage, he said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. As we go through it, you'll begin to get a picture here of what God's trying to get across. There is a man, there is a woman, there is a father, there is a mother. There is the ability to reproduce. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, God, I mean, through the Apostle Paul, tells us that because of immoralities, and what had happened was the church at Corinth had written to Paul and said, look, you know what, people were out of control in their sexual behavior. What's the standard by which we should change our behavior to, to relate to? 
And he said, because of immoralities or the desire on the part of people to please themselves in ways sexually that are not pleasing to God, who sets the ultimate standard, he said, this is the standard. Because of these immoralities, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. You follow this? All right. This, I mean, this is, I hope this isn't too deep now because it's going to get worse. But this is, you know, this is where we got to start. All right, now, in, in, uh, in uh, Exodus 20, verse 12, commandment number 5 says, Honor what? Your father and your mother. You follow this? Ephesians 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Proverbs 1, 8, and also Proverbs 6, 20 talk about the parallel authority of a child listening to both his father and listening to the instruction of his mother. Now, the point is, and I hope it is clear to all of us as it is clear to me, the Bible clearly defines what a family is. A family is a man and a woman who enter into a marital relationship committed to one another for a lifetime, and at that moment they become husband and wife with the ability to reproduce children and at that moment, they become mother and father, or father and mother. And the whole purpose of this is so that the father and the mother will raise their children in the admonition of the Lord, teaching them about who God is, what He demands of our life, so that they will grow up in their behavior to honor both God and their parents and the way that they live their life. That is the family according to God's definition. Now, why am I being very clear about this? Because it's very, very important that we understand the message that is contradictory that we're hearing in our society today. Listen to me. There is nothing wrong with tradition if tradition is rooted in the absolute standard of the Word of God. You see, you see there's nothing wrong with the traditional family if the definition is God's definition. There is nothing wrong with traditional moral absolutes or traditional values if the values are rooted in Scripture. Now, I would be the first one to agree with you. I hate tradition for the sake of tradition if no one knows where and how the tradition started. I, I, I'm in that line with you. Why do we do it this way? We've always done it this way. Well, wait a minute, maybe some idiot somewhere along the line conned a whole bunch of other people that were too busy to ask what they were talking about because they were in a hurry to go home and, and watch a football game or something. You know, see what I'm saying? I mean, tradition for the sake of tradition isn't enough. But tradition, based upon the Word of God, is everything that we need. I don't need to redefine the family if it's based on God's definition. This is what he says. That's the way it is. That's all it takes for me. I understand that. But here's the problem with it. Because of the behavior of certain people in our society, they have to redefine that because why? They don't fit that profile. Why not? Well, here's why not. Capital Resource Institute, a media release, says homosexuality in public school textbooks. Bang, that's the blurb. State, of, State Board of Education will consider including homosexuality in the public school's health curriculum as an acceptable lifestyle. The curriculum commission appointed by the Board of Education reviewed materials and listened to public comment last May, and after two days of hearings, the commission voted to recommend the controversial materials to the board. The materials, quote, define families broadly, seeking to include, quote, unquote, same-sex parents. 
This reveals a key step in the homosexual agenda to affect the acceptance of gay sex as a healthy alternative to monogamous heterosexual sex in marriage. From this platform, they seek to portray themselves as victims of discrimination in need of special protection. I, 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 I'm going to deal with this. We're going to deal with this. But, but the reason I'm dealing with that in light of this is that it's very important to understand that there is a movement in our culture to redefine what a family is because there are certain people, they don't meet the criteria. Why? Because it's not a male and a female, because they don't have reproductive capabilities, because you can't call both mother and father, because Heather has two mommies. Give me a break. See, here's the problem that we have here. And why? Because of immorality, God said, let them marry. Why? Because there's a desire to please yourself sexually that is an abomination before the standard of God. But see, this is the problem that we have all throughout our society. We need to redefine everything because we want to drag the standard down to our level of behavior, and we don't have any objective moral compass anymore that we agree as a standard in which we will measure the direction of human behavior. You follow how serious this is? This is a very serious problem. And if, and if the agenda out there, we can just throw this absolute standard away, then anybody can think anything that they want. And you can have people saying, she's the most ethical person that I know. Based on what? Based on who we hang out with. Isn't that what it's coming down to? And that's really the problem. So we got the same-sex parents. Well, the problem is Heather's two mommies can't reproduce. And it's a good thing Heather's mommy had a daddy somewhere along the line, or else they wouldn't have this problem to have to deal with, now would they? See, this is, we're going to deal with this in a couple of weeks, the whole danger of homosexuality in our community, because it's not a matter of, you know, and they throw out quotes like, well, you're a homophobe. Oh, you know what? I, 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 you better believe I am. You know, how else can you get around that? But it's not because I'm afraid of the person. It's because I'm afraid of what the person is doing as it relates to the standard that's set forth in God. I'm a sinophobe. You know, because uh, seriously, think about it. I mean, I've seen it, man. Sin is overrated and undercalculated. That's all there is to it. You just not mark that down somewhere because that'll be true all your life. The problem is either we have to change behavior or we have to change the standard. And God's not changing the standard because it's not up for a vote. Got it? Okay. Now, obviously, there's a problem, too, and we've got to take this in consideration, is that, you know, God is sovereign. He determines life and death. He determines whether someone will become a widow or a widower. He determines whether a couple, a man and a woman, united in marriage, whether they will have the ability to conceive or not. All of those are things that we need to take into consideration as we look at the definition of family because God is sovereign. But any other definition that doesn't line up with what God's Word has to say about the family, then we have to throw it out the door because it doesn't apply. And we need to bring that definition in line with the absolute standard that's set up. So now, going back to the question, where do we cultivate our conscience? Well, we cultivate it in our families. Let me ask you a question. In a, cu a couple weeks, or maybe, no, it was about a month ago now, the Orange County Register had that uh, article that they ran about ethics in, in Orange County, morality slips sliding away. There's no positive role models. But let me ask you a question, and you see if you can answer this, because they did do a survey of who was the most influential people in, 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 a, in a child's life. Let me hear some votes. Who are the most influential people in a child's life? Number one, parents. Number one, without any question, parents had the most influence in the life of a child. Who was number two? Teachers, exactly. Man, you guys are good. Uh, and who was number three? What? 
grandparents, uh, you know what, they're not in there, and I, and, they, and I don't know why that is. Maybe it's part of parents. TV is, uh, is definitely an influential factor. But you know what's interesting is in this particular survey, parents were 30% more influential than their teachers and 50% more influential than friends or even their religious beliefs. Isn't that fascinating? See, parents, that's where it really comes, that's what it all comes back to. Parents. Mothers and fathers working together to teach the basic rules of civil behavior and the laws of God. That's really what it all comes back to. One of the most disturbing things about the trend in our society, when you have a divorce rate, and we talked a couple weeks ago about the importance of marriage and commitment, when you have a divorce rate of 55% in a culture, what's disturbing about it is, is that parents are nullified to a certain degree or at least neutralized neutralized by the influence that it can have in the lives of their children. And, I'll, and I'm going to show you exactly how that comes to play. It says, In 1960, one of every ten households was maintained by a woman with no husband. In 1986, it was down to one out of every six. Tonight, enough teenagers to fill the Rose Bowl, Cotton Bowl, Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, Fiesta Bowl, and the average Super Bowl will practice prostitution to support drug addiction. One million teenage girls get pregnant every year with 500,000 of them having abortions as a result. Of all the 14-year-old girls alive today, 40% will become pregnant by their 19th birthday. 60% of all church-involved teenagers are sexually active. 66% of American high school seniors have used illegal drugs or alcohol. And every 78 seconds, a teenager in America attempts suicide. And I wonder why. 23 cities 10 years ago reported gang activity. In 1993, over 700 cities reported gang activity. Atlantic Monthly Magazine last April on the cover said this, Dan Quayle was right. Well, of course, they weren't going to put that on the magazine during election time, but they certainly weren't afraid to put it on six months afterwards because they knew there was no impact, at least for another four years. But the point that they made, and I'm going to make as we go through this, is children and single-family parents are six times as likely to be poor, two to three times as likely to have emotional and behavioral problems, are more likely to drop out of high school, are more likely to be pregnant as teenagers, to abuse drugs, and to be in trouble with the law. Many children from disrupted families have a harder time achieving intimacy in a relationship, forming a stable marriage, or even holding a steady job. For most children of divorce, the father is gone as a father. He often becomes a parent without portfolio. He becomes more like an uncle or a brother who visits on the weekends. And the problem, as many of you know and you experience, is that there's a competition that takes place and who's going to be the coolest parent, the one that's the nicest, the one who doesn't you know, get on my back, the one that doesn't try to love me and discipline me in a way that is pleasing to God but gives me what I want to give. It's like this gal who's going through. She first divorces her biological parents to live with her adoptive parents. Now the adoptive parents required something of her, so she didn't like that anymore. And now she runs and she goes to live with the bio biological parents. And, you know, it's a big old thing going on all around us. And that one just happens to get all the publicity. But it's happening everywhere, and you know it if you're going through it. And the problem with it is this. At worst, a dad disappears entirely from the child's life. According to the National Survey of Children in Disrupted Families, only one child in six saw his or her father as often as once a week. 
Ten years after a divorce, more than two-thirds of children report not having seen their father for a year. Nor are relations with mothers improved by divorce. Only half of the children who were close to their mothers before divorce remain so afterward. The introduction of boyfriends and new husbands puts an added strain on relations and sometimes represent a threat to the children. A Canadian study found that preschool children and stepfamilies were 40 times as likely to suffer abuse as children in intact families. Crime, more than 70% of all juveniles in state reform institutions come from fatherless homes. Poverty, more than half the increase in child poverty during the 80s is attributable to a family breakup. Family dissolution, the conclusion is, is taking a terrible toll on children and as a result on America. What's the purpose of all this? I mean, you can't go a day without reading the newspaper and seeing what the problem is. Single father families on the increase, shortchanging the kids. It's not bad enough divorce guarantees emotional upheaval for children, but often it also means economic deprivation as child support orders are ignored. Another article, they can walk from duty to children and they often do. Some make excuses, but most fathers that are non-payers are just plain old deadbeats. I mean, this is what's going on all around us, and, I, and, I, and the reason I bring this up is, is that because if, if the stability of a society is in the family, then it's no wonder the society isn't stable anymore either. We need to get back to some basics. God's plan has always been for a husband and wife committed to one another for a lifetime to be the number one positive role model for their children. That has always been God's plan. It continues to be God's plan because that's the place where repetition takes place. Aristotle said virtue consists of not merely knowing what is right, but also in having the will to do what is right. And the will is trained by practice, by choosing to do right repeatedly until it becomes a habit. In Aristotle's words, he says, we become just by the practice of just actions. See, this is what it's all about. Every successful organization will tell you the key to their success is repetition. Doing something over and over and over and over again until you get it right. You think about where that all starts. It starts in the family. It starts in our homes. It starts in telling your kids, make your bed over and do it right. It starts in telling them, pick up their clothes and do it right. It starts by sitting down with them when they do their homework and they do a sloppy paper to say, you know what, that's not good. Do it right. Do it over. Do it the right way. See, this is where that value system is reinforced. These are the things that we go over and over again. Anyone that's a coach in any kind of sports knows the value of doing something over and over again and doing it right. Man, I had some of the best coaches I ever had were guys that made us do things over and over and over again until we got it right. And until we got it right, we kept doing it. And it was like, I thought, man, eventually they'd get tired of telling us to do it right. And they never did. Do it right. Do it over. If you don't do it over, then we'll go run two miles. What do you want to do? Run or you want to do it right? Well, I'm not that bright, but two miles. You know, you just kind of get to the point of saying, man, you know what? I think doing it right seems like a better choice to me. You know, and, and that's really what it's all about. Doing things over and over and over, but doing them the right way over and over and over. See, the problem in most families is, you know, you, you grow up in an environment where the parents are trying to tell you, don't do as I do, just do as I say. And that's not good enough. Because every kid that ever grew up in an environment said, I'll never be like that, ended up being exactly like that. Why? Because that's the role model that was continually played out and lived out before them over and over and over and over again, and you can't help but pick up that stuff. How do you do this? 
parents need to be involved in the training process, repetitious role model, learning by example. That's what's happening. In our, that's why what's happening in our society is so dangerous because parents are spending 40% less time with their kids than their parents spent with them. And it's obvious. If you're not there, you can't spend time with them, right? See, that's the whole problem. And that's why we've got a whole generation of kids who haven't cultivated their consciences and they haven't been cultivated, so they grow up and they do whatever they want to do and they try to forward their own type of, a, of a absolute or non-absolute value system. They don't know what they are, so they just do whatever seems right to them or they do what the kids around them are doing. Why? Because we're not spending any time. You know, parents aren't spending time. You're not spending time with your kids. I'm not spending enough time with I mean, that's what I'm trying to, to get across and try to understand myself. And you know the reason for it? Because it's hard, stinking work. Isn't that true? It's a lot easier to want a miracle. Uh, and, and it is. It's a lot. No, seriously. I mean, think about it. Wow. We all want miracles. We want them today. We want a miracle, man. We want God to just do a miracle in our kid's life. And this is after spending years and years ignoring them. Now we want God to just, just save them today and take them out of all the garbage that they're in. And just, I want a miracle today. Man, some of God's best miracles take place when we're obedient to God when we're supposed to be, and the results we don't even understand. They're a blessing from God, and we can attribute it to God because we did what God called us to do in the beginning, and we don't have to be on our knees praying for some miracle to get our kids out of the mess that they're in because we ignored them because we were too busy doing what we wanted to do, and we wanted to be happy because we were doing the wrong thing. And now we want God to fix it. He can and he does, and praise God that he does. But you know what? That's not obedience to God. He says, you want a miracle later in your kid's life? Then you start today. And you spend time with them. And you teach them right and wrong. And you instill values in them. And you do what you're supposed to do. And you live right before God, before them. And they'll see it. And I'll give you an example. Is it worth it? You better believe it. Joe White is a, a living legend, this guy, in Christian camping. Uh, he has a camp in Missouri that draws 5,000 kids from 40 different states every year. And listen to the results. He said the vast majority of them come from Christian homes where moms and dads were committed to each other. And he surveyed these kids. And here's the result that he found. 95% of the boys say their fathers regularly tell them, I love you. 98% of the girls say their mothers regularly tell them, I'm proud of you and you're doing a good job. 91% of the kids say their parents play games with them. 94% say their fathers attend their athletic events. And you know what's amazing to me about working in the NFL? The percentage is the same. Every guy that I talk to, they have the same story. You know what? When I wanted to quit, my dad was there. My mom was there. My big brother was there. My family was there. They supported me. They encouraged me. They went from peewee to to high school, to college, and they were there, and they've always been there. And I see them even today, even though they live across the country. I see pa families coming to games here and on the road and everywhere to show support for their kids. And it wasn't just because they finally made the pros and they want a piece of the action. It's because they've been doing that their whole life. And it's no coincidence that they're in the position that they're in with that type of support system that they have going for them. 97% of the boys say their dads hug them. 100% of the girls say they get hugs from both their moms and dads. Recalling their childhood, 100% of the girls remember having stories read to them by their mothers. 85% of the boys recall having stories read to them by their dads. 89% say their fathers have taken them fishing. 
100% say that their parents have taken them to Sunday school. And you know what, folks? It's no coincidence that these kids, 80% of them say they're against premarital sex. It's no coincidence that 92% of them don't use illegal drugs. And it's no coincidence the majority of them have never drank, have never drank alcohol. I'm going to ask you a question. I ask myself it. If your kids went away for camp this summer, men, women, mothers, dads, what would your kids say about your family? Man. That's really what it's all about, isn't it? Now, I'm busy, and you're busy. And I'm as susceptible as you to get hung up in this argument, in this debate. You know what debate it is? Well, at least we have quality time. Huh? We have quality time. Why? Because I don't have quantity time to give you. But we have quality time. Have you ever tried to make your family enjoy quality time? (laughs) Have you? Here's the way it usually goes. Tonight is quality time. We're going to have quality time tonight, whether you've got something else to do or not. We're meeting together, we're having quality time, and you're going to love and enjoy it. Because that's what quality time is supposed to be. And don't tell me you're not available because I feel guilty because I don't have time to spend with you, and it's the only time I can, and we are going to have quality family time tonight. That sounds great, doesn't it? You know what the problem with quality and quantity time is? When does quality time break out? During quantity time. Come on, boy. Take your fishing. We're done. <laughs> we went fishing. What, what else was that list, Chuck? Can you get it over again here? Read your story. Sea spot run. There you go. Now when you go to camp, you know, don't forget to mention I spent... See, quality time... <laughs> isn't this the truth, though? I mean, think about it. Quality time always breaks out in the middle of quantity time. Some of the most quality time we've ever had as a family is when we're spending quantity time together. You don't sandwich it in between everything else you have going on. Man, one of the things, I take Ryan with me every time we do chapel or whatever because he's stuck and I always say, Ryan, I need a carpool buddy. You know, and I don't know if he really feels good about himself. <laughs> but, but uh, nah, you know, because you, know, you want to say, man, you know what, I really want to spend some quality time with you. But, because, but you do, and he knows that. And so we go together, and it's great because we have chances to meet people, to talk, to share, to be together, to be part of it together. But it's, it's quantity time. And in the midst of all of that, there's quality time. It's being there. You have to be there, folks. You know what? And I'm sick of people, and I'm sick of people in churches that should know better, Christians who want to do what's right before God, always making excuses about how they don't have enough time for whatever. And the reality of it is you make choices in life, and you choose to do what you want to do because that's what makes you happy. That's whatever stokes your fire. And in the meantime, you forget about your kids, and you wonder why they grow up and they don't want to have any kids of their own. We'll talk about that next week. But there's a very real problem. And that is quality time breaks out during quantity time. I'll give you a good example. How many of your kids like to go to bed? How many kids say, oh, bedtime? Can't wait. Need that good night's rest. I'm out of here. I know it's good for me. No, it's like, no kid ever wants to go to bed. You know, you know what? I mean, you want, to talk, you want to talk to your kids? Talk to them about bedtime. They'll tell you everything that they know about anything and every life aspiration and everything that's gone on. And, hey, you got time? Dad, and it's like, they're sitting up. You're laying on the bed like, oh, God. Oh, 
you're falling asleep, you know, you're waking up. I, it was funny, I had a friend that just built a house, just built, remodeled his house, and he hooked his water bed up, got the hose tube, put it on, went in to tuck his kid goodnight. His kid was talking, whatever, he laid next to him. Two hours later, he wakes up and he hears, <laughs> it's all the wood frame of the bed going, <laughs> and this big old pregnant water bed broke out, man. He said he just went over to him and was like, oh, no, but it was a good illustration of how, man, I mean, this kid just took, hey, you got time? Hey, I got time. You know, I'm not going anywhere to sleep. I hope not, but that's what I think's happening here. See, quality time breaks out in the mi- middle of quantity time. You could go and go fishing for a day, and out of that day, you may only have a half an hour where you really get to know your son or your daughter, or whatever you're spending time doing, because that's just the way that relationships are. You can't rush things like that. They take time, and you can't expect God to just do it for you because you don't have time. Tom Peters, who's a guy who wrote In Search of Excellence, A Passion for Excellence, and Thriving on Chaos, listen to his words about what it means to make choices. He says, We are frequently asked if, if, if it's possible to have it all. You know, a full and satisfying personal life and a full and satisfying, hard-working, professional one. You know what our answer to them is? No. The price of excellence is time, energy, attention, and focus at the, at the very same time that energy, attention, and focus could have gone toward enjoying your daughter's soccer game. Excellence, he says, is a high-cost item. And he's right. Because it could cost you your children. It could cost your child to drugs. To alcohol. It could cost your daughter going out and looking for some kind of a stroke from a male because dad hasn't been there to give it and they're looking for someone to give it to them. It could cost them everything emotionally. That's why kids turn to cults. That's why kids turn to gangs. Why? Because it's like family. Like family? What do you need something like family for if you have a family? You don't need any cheap substitutes. Less time, less influence. And it's not hard to see that in the world that we live in. Hey, you know what? You can shoot 80%, man, if you're shooting layups. And if you're moving back further and further, the percentage drops rapidly. And a guy that can shoot 30% three-pointers three in the NBA is a great athlete. But the percentage, the less time, the less influence, the further away, the less effectiveness. That's all there is to it. Give you an example, and we'll quit on this. Jimmy Johnson, Dallas Cowboy coach. Heard the interview, made me sick. And that's why I was rooting that Dallas would lose. Even though I wasn't rooting for Buffalo either, so I was really messed up that particular day. (laughs) But I'll tell you why. Because when Jimmy Johnson took the coaching position of Dallas, you know the first thing that he did? He got a divorce. They said, I understand that when you took this position, the first thing you did was you cut your wife. And that's basically what he did. He goes, yeah, we've been married 20-some years, 26 years, and I knew that if I took this position that I wouldn't have the time to give her, and I knew that there's no way, and I didn't want to be unfair to her. What a great guy, huh? You know? But I didn't want to be unfair to her, so I let her, you know, we got a divorce. So they interview his sons, and they, and they ask them, they said, if your dad, if you were in trouble and you needed your dad, would he be there for you? And the one started laughing and said, yeah, well, yeah, probably they say, well, well, you know what, though? But it just depends on who the Cowboys are playing that Sunday. See, Jimmy Johnson, hey, he's led the Cowboys to two Super Bowls. Has he done a good job from a business standpoint? Absolutely. And he'll, and he'll make a lot of money for doing it. 
But you know what? Jimmy Johnson will be like every other athlete that's ever come and gone. There'll be a footnote in some journal someday. And there'll just be a little name with an asterisk, Jimmy Johnson, Chuck Knoll, uh, Vince Lombardi, all these people, they're all gone, and they're going to be gone. But you know what the saddest part of all of it is? To get a little footnote in some kind of a journal, he sacrificed what was important in life. He paid the ultimate price because he lost his family. Now, I don't know anything about him spiritually, but I know this as Christians, and that is very simply this. My number one priority is to please God in everything that I do. And if it means sacrificing what is right before God to become a footnote in some man's journal, I don't think there's a comparison between the two. Because I want to go down for all of eternity in God's hall of faith as one of the men who believed God, trusted God, and did what is right. And the rewards are absolutely incredible, and there's no comparison. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot hold to obtain that which he can never lose. And that is true. Jonathan Edwards, in closing, was a man who made a difference. He was born in 1703, and he was perhaps the most brilliant mind in America. He was a pastor, a writer, and later president of Princeton, and he and his wife had 11 children, and of his known male descendants, here's what we know about him. More than 300 became pastors, missionaries, or theological professors. 120 were professors at various universities. 110 became attorneys. Wow, nobody's perfect, but... But that was, that was back in the days where lawyers were something special. <laughs> anyway, we're 60%. 60 of them were prominent authors. 30 were judges. 14 served as presidents of universities and colleges. Three served in the U.S. Congress. And one became vice president of the United States. And although, this is what is known, although Edwards was known for his daily regimen of 13 hours in the study, and despite his busy schedule of teaching, writing, and pastoring, he made it a point to come home and spend one hour every day with one of his children. He was one of the great minds of human history. And that's probably why he realized how important it was to spend time with his kids. You see, that's where it all starts. That's what we call a conscience. And I'm going to ask you a question one more time. If your kids went away to camp, what would they say about your house? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity again to take a look at your objective moral compass by which all human behavior is to be measured. God, you are a judge and our jury. God, may we grasp hold of that reality quickly and seize the day. God, for those of us who are parents that didn't do what we were supposed to do and are struggling with the results, God, we know you're a God of great awesomeness, great compassion. And in those cases, you can, if it's your will, desire to provide a miracle. But God, oh, there's so much heartbreak that went along that route. God, help all the rest of us who still have an opportunity, as parents and as grandparents, to spend time with the children of the next generation. God, we see it today in Washington. We see what's happening around us. We see what happened 30 years ago and the impact it has on our culture today. God, help us to realize that our children are the next leaders of our country and God, help us to instill values, traditional, moral, absolute values into their lives and into their hearts so that 30 years from now we will still be a nation that is really, truly a nation under God. And we just thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.